Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 792nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have two people who continue a multi-generational practice of regenerative organic farming. We're talking with Brita and Bryce Lundberg about growing organic rice. In 1937, Brita's great-grandparents left Nebraska in the wake of the Dust Bowl after seeing how farming techniques stripped the land of its topsoil. When they moved to California, they decided to do things differently by tending the soil, air, water, and wildlife as carefully as their crops so they can deliver on their founding promise to leave the land better than they found it. The Lundberg family began farming organically in the late 1960s and in 1923 became the first U.S. grown rice brand to launch regenerative organic certified rice. Brita is a fourth generation farmer who has boots on the ground experience in the fields. She also spent several years honing her storytelling skills in the New York publishing world. However, sometimes it takes leaving home to realize what you left behind. Today, Brita's favorite story to tell is her family's. Now, as resident expert on the brand's rich history and heritage, Brita shares the Lundberg story with a broad base of eco-conscious consumers. Bryce is a third-generation rice farmer and serves as chair of the Northern California Water Association, is on the board of the Western Canal Water District, and on the California State Board of Food and Agriculture. He has previously served on the boards of the California Certified Organic Farmers, the California Organic Food Advisory Board, and the California Rice Research Board, as well as on the Standards Committee of the Organic Crop Improvement Association. Welcome to the show today, Brita and Bryce. Are you ready to rock rice? We are ready to rock rice. How about you, Brita? We are ready. Thanks for having us, Greg. Awesome. You bet. I'm so excited. First of all, I just want to start by saying... Thank you. Thank you so much for doing what you're doing. I've been eating your rice for 15, 20 years and in big part because of the regenerative practices that you use. So we're going to be talking about that in a little while. 
And I shared a bit about you in the bio. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Well, Greg, I am a third generation farmer and family member at Lundberg. And my parents always encouraged my brothers and me to pursue something other than rice or other than rice farming. And if we wanted to farm, they encouraged us to come back and they would teach us to farm and welcome us at the farm. And so I pursued a, a course of study, ag policy, water policy, environmental policy, and was thinking law was the area wow. for me. And I was doing a an internship at the Planning and Conservation League, a conservation NGO in Sacramento, and just had this thought one day when I was pouring through some legal stuff and said, really, do I want to pursue this or I could be a farmer? And I thought <laughs> the life uh, of farming is it's busy and it's hectic and it can be hard, but getting to work outdoors, getting to work with your hands, getting to see food grow where there was soil, water, and sun, and seed, and to see the crops grow, I thought, why would I trade legal for agriculture or farming with my family? And, wow. and, and that was really the pathway for me to say, I choose farming. And, and truly, my father and, and my uh, family welcomed me back to the farm to participate in the family business. I grew up right on the farm. In a uh -huh. little town of Richvale, town of Richvale is about 70 miles north of Sacramento in the Sacramento Valley, a town of 250. And so it was good to go uh, to school away from town and to see what there was, but to be able to come back and farm was, was quite a blessing. Wow. And Brita? So I also grew up spending lots of time in the fields and on the farm with my dad and brothers, but... I was always a reader and a writer and a dreamer. And so I left the farm for about 10 years, uh, first to go to school in LA and London, and then to live in New York and work in book publishing for several years, um, most recently at Simon & Schuster. And I loved working with authors to, to help them tell their stories. But I'd be sitting at my desk at night in Rockefeller Center, and my, my dad would send me a video from the fields of a flock of pelicans in, in them one day or a turtle in it the next. And I just started to think, I'm doing this wrong. I want to be a part of our family's story and help carry that forward for the next generation. Um, it was about the same time that we started to lose um, members of the, the second generation. and. Mm -hmm. I'd always loved hearing their stories of the early days of the farm and, and how they started farming together. And I wanted my brother's kids, my, my nephews and niece to grow up with those same stories. And so I wanted to be a part of helping to carry those forward for the next generation. And it was around the time that we were embarking on a brand refresh. Mm -hmm. And so I applied for a job in marketing on the website without telling anyone. Oh and, my gosh, um, really? Yeah. <laughs> and I think I told my parents after I'd al already applied, um, but then waited to see if HR would call me. And, and luckily they did. And I got the job after a couple rounds of interviews and, and moved home um, to Chico, which is just about 20 miles away from the farm um, a few years ago now. Uh, so now I get to, to help tell our story in, in lots of different places. And I love it. Wow, nice. And so this is a story that goes back 
what, almost a hundred years. Can you, Brita, give me a little bit of, of the backstory? Sure. So in 1937, my great-grandparents, Albert and Francis Lundberg, left Nebraska in the wake of the Dust Bowl with a farmall tractor because they were worried that the tractors in California would be no good. <laughs> <laughs> a flatbed Chevy truck and their four little boys. And that's about it. They started over in a little town called Richvale, where my dad grew up. And they saw how short-sighted farming techniques stripped the land of the topsoil uh, during the Dust Bowl. My great-grandma Frances would tell us stories about seeing the dust clouds come rolling across the plains, and, and she would run from window to window, stuffing each one with wet rags to keep the dust out. But, of course, wow. it didn't matter. Um, by the time the clouds had rolled through, everything was covered in dust. And, of course, it wreaked havoc on the farm, too. Yeah. And so when they moved to California, they decided to do things differently, to work in partnership with nature, or as my great-grandpa Albert put it, to leave the land better than they found it. And in the 40s, that meant not burning the rice straw left in the fields after harvest, um, as was standard practice um, until at least the 90s, I would say. But great-grandpa Albert wanted to build soil health and also protect air quality. So he said, we're, we're just not going to do that. And he started buying ground, which was a bit unconventional for the day as well. And I remember my Uncle Wendell telling me a story of when Great Grandpa Albert took Uncle Wendell and his brothers out to the field and said, everybody says I'm going to go broke on this land and the ground is no good. But you see that weed there? That'll add a lot of fertility to the soil. That is a good weed. This land just needs a good farmer. And, wow. You know, I think that great grandpa Albert was a good farmer and he passed that along to his four boys. And they each went their own way for a time to college or the military, but ultimately decided to come back to the farm and, and farm together. And it was in the 1960s, I think, that a company called Chicosan came knocking. They were looking for, for someone to grow organic rice for them. And the four brothers, they didn't really know what organic meant. Nobody did, really. Right. The early days of the organic movement. So they called up the Rodale because they'd read Organic Gardening Magazine. And the principles of organic farming seemed to align with their dad's advice to leave the land better than they found it. So they decided to give it a go. And then a few years later, they bought an old bread truck, filled the back with bags of rice, stenciled with the Lundberg name, and hired a driver to stop at health food stores along the coast from, from California to Washington. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's really how we got our start. And then, of course, as my Uncle Wendell also said, they started receiving orders from long-haired hippies who filled the backs of their VW buses with rice and went on to start natural food companies. So that's how we got our start. And a few generations later, we are still growing rice organically and regenerative organically um, together, the family in our hometown of Richville, California. Wow. And so our listeners may not know what regenerative organic means. Can one of you jump in and tease that apart? Let us know what it is. Yeah, I'll give it a shot. Regenerative organic has three pillars that that you need to focus on and that is soil health animal welfare and taking care of of your team members and 
I think a lot of people say is organic already regenerative. And, re- and I say organic focuses on soil, but the USDA organic program, it's a floor and it's a, it can be a low floor. They allow organic hydroponics with no soil. And, mm-hmm. and so regenerative organic certification, I would say is it's from the Regenerative Organic Alliance. It's a, a way of farming that I think is consistent with what people expect from organic. Mm-hmm. Building soil, not, not just trading out conventional practices for organic practices, but actually building soil health, focusing on treating soil as a living thing. And that's one of the things we've always done is say, this soil is alive. And if you want to have live food and food that's going to support healthy people, it starts with healthy soil and goes to healthy plants and healthy yep. food and healthy people. And Greg, we don't have animals that we tend or own on our fields, but our fields are part of the Pacific Flyway. And oh. there are thousands and thousands, if not millions of birds that use our fields for habitat in the winter. <laughs> and so working with Regenerative Organic Certification and the Regenerative Organic Alliance, they recognize that you don't have to own the animals in order to work with animal welfare or wildlife. And we've been working with the wild since the 30s or since the family came here. And so a portion of our land, we will grow cover crops on all winter, and a portion of it we'll flood for birds, for ducks, geese, sandhill cranes, all sorts of, of swans and shorebirds. Wow. And it is an, an amazing habitat for those birds. And that is our commitment to the animal welfare portion of regenerative organic. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are over 200 species that use our fields for habitat. And you think 200, of- 200 species of birds. Oh, just of animals. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe dozens and or more birds. But when you think about anywhere from large mammals like deer and, and coyotes to smaller mammals like skunks and raccoons and rodents and rabbits to all sorts of reptiles, snakes and, and lizards and turtles and, and salamanders to then all sorts of birds. But the rice fields are not a sterile monocrop. When you have a rice field, it's an explosion of life, of diversity. And that's what we want to promote as we are farming organic rice. And then we've always wanted to take care of our team members and the farmers that work with us uh, to produce organic rice. And it just seemed natural, a natural fit to be with the Regenerative Organic Alliance and the regenerative organic certification. What do all these animals bring to your fields? I'm thinking one thing in particular, but I'm sure there's others. Rita, I think you describe it really well, the interaction with the birds uh, in the wintertime. Uh, would you like to describe that? Sure. As my dad mentioned, we flood a portion of our fields each winter to provide vital habitat and nutrition for thousands, if not millions, of migratory birds. But They're not the only ones who benefit from this partnership. Their feet also put that nutrient-rich rice straw into contact with the soil, which turns it into mulch for the next year's crop. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a really cool symbiotic relationship that we have with them. And what about the poop? 
Yes, <laughs> exactly right, Greg. Um, I'll just call it what it is, man. The, the birds will consume the leftover rice, but they're also consuming the leftover weed seeds, mm-hmm. right? And then they leave their fertility for us. It's a good exchange. It's a wonderful exchange. Even as it gets to the spring, the flocks of birds are still, especially the geese, and they'll come in and mow down an awful lot of our cover crop. But that's a good exchange as well, that they're eating the grasses or the greenery and and then leaving the fertility. We'll take that exchange. Right. And how does rice grow? I know there's something called an upland rice. And there's something called a patty rice. And I'm actually going to be, hopefully this spring, going to be growing out some upland rice here. But that's not the kind of rice you raise, is it? We grow our rice in patties. And the area we live in, Greg, is in a very flat valley. And our soil is heavy clay. It is like potter's clay. It is so heavy. And and then below that, about two feet down, is a hard pan, compressed clay and sand. And so our fields don't percolate water or not very much. It's like a bathtub. And and so the soil is perfect for rice. We live in a part of California that has abundant water and our summers are hot. And so we have these rice patties. They're super flat. They're zero grade. So there's no slope on these fields and and they hold water. And, And so we grow patty rice. We work the fields in the spring and we do as little cultivation as necessary to prepare the seed bed. Mm-hmm. And then we flood and, and then we actually fly the seed into the water. We soak seed and the seed then sinks right to the bottom. And by soaking it ahead of time, it pre-germinates the rice. And so when the rice hits the, the water and sinks to the bottom, it is primed to grow. And, and so we grow in the patties. Flying the seed on is a very efficient, effective way to do it. We can seed about 100 acres in an hour by flying it on instead of putting wow. it on by ground. But that pre-germination is so important for the organic system or process of growing organic rice. But we grow 17 varieties of rice. And our goal is to have varieties of rice that have strong seedling vigor. When they start to grow, they grow fast and strong and will come through the water uh, very quickly. It is part of what gives organic rice an edge on many of the weeds. And of course, weeds are our biggest issue in growing organic rice. There are millions of weed seeds in our fields, and they're just going to grow with the rice. And our goal is to help give the rice a competitive edge. Of course, there's nothing for us to to use to help control the the weeds except for water. And water management for us is how we control weeds. When our neighbors or other rice farmers are using herbicides, we are managing water for managing weeds. And we're just trying to give the rice a competitive edge. Of course, yeah. there's always going to be weeds in our fields, but but we're just and fortunately for us, over the the years, our grandparents and parents and um, aunts and uncles figured out ways to help the rice have a competitive edge, and without that, there there wouldn't be any or very little effective organic rice. 
How much water do you put in there? Six inches? It varies, Greg. At the beginning of the year, we go pretty deep. We'll go up as many, eight, nine, 10, sometimes as many as 12 inches because wow. we, we have to drown the grass. I was going to say two, that's, that's going to control some of your weeds, isn't it? Yeah. There's two kinds of weeds, the grass weeds and the aquatic weeds. <laughs> and the grass weeds we have to drown. And that's right at the beginning. And rice and grass are very similar in their physiology. Yep. Uh, but the rice will stay underwater about 48 hours longer than the grass. That's our window of controlling grass is to drown it. And that happens at about 20, 21 days. Sometimes if it's cooler, a little longer. Sometimes if it's hotter, a little shorter. But mm -hmm. we've got to drown it. And Brita and I spend a lot of time looking at rice that time of year. It's <laughs> the fourth leaf. As you think about grass, there's these leaves that come up. I write the first leaf, and then the second leaf's a little bigger. The third leaf's a little bigger and taller. And that fourth leaf has to, you have to leave it for grass. That's the one you have to drown. And, and it has to stay underwater all that time. And when the fourth leaf comes out, if it doesn't break through the water, the grass plant will drown. And you'll see the fourth leaf start to corkscrew a little bit and, and uh, curl under. And then you've known that you've controlled the grass there. And But that same situation, the fourth leaf of rice has to come out or it'll drown. And so that's the dance we do with uh. the grass. Interesting. But all the time, the aquatic weeds, the lilies, the bulrush, the small flower umbrella plant, the duck salad, it's all loving it because it's aquatic and it'll mm -hmm. grow underwater all summer and then take over the rice. And so after we drown grass, then we let the water down and it doesn't rain here in the summer. We'll leave the fields dry for about 30 days and the aquatics will dry up before and, and die before the rice will. Or that's the strategy anyway. Wow. That's our system of managing uh -huh. weeds with water. It's innovative. It's more uh, labor intensive. You've got to be out there scouting and uh, watching your, the rice and the weeds, but it's well worth doing. I would say, I'm going to say pure way of working with weeds, with working with nature. There's many parts of the world that will put hundreds of people into fields because two thirds of the world eats rice every day, multiple right. times a day. And there's parts of the world where they'll have kind of whole communities working with planting by hand and weeding by hand. But here in, in Northern California, that's just not an option. We need to have ways of working, like you say, with nature yeah. to work with weeds. That's really, so I've studied something called permaculture. I'm sure you've heard of it. Sure. I've I've studied permaculture for over 30 years and permaculture has us look at nature and natural systems and then start mimicking them. And that's really what you've done with the water and the weeds. It is. It is understanding the plants and your crops and observing how to, how to work with them to give the crops an advantage. Yeah. So do you only grow rice now commercially? We don't have an awful lot of, of rotational crops that are options. So we do grow an awful lot of oats and vetch and fava beans as our rotation crops, mm. but they aren't for us. They're not cash crops or they're not financially able to support the farm. And so we grow a lot of them and we harvest a lot of oats and vetch, but it's mostly to, and fava beans, it's mostly to 
to use as cover crop seed for the next year because we're committed to, right? And one of the hallmarks of healthy soil is rotation and cover cropping. And, and so Rita would say that cover crop is like green juice for the soil. Yeah. How, how do you describe that? Brie? I think you like to describe it as green juice for the ground, right? That's right. That's how I just... benefit helps restore nutrients to the soil, helps sequester carbon because we grow them during the winter, allowing photosynthesis to occur year round. Also helps crowd out some weeds and uh, reduce weed pressure. But then also our cover crops provide breeding habitat for ducks. Um, they've lost a lot of natural breeding habitat. And so they like to nest in our cover crops. Um, where they can hide from predators. Um, and so each year uh, we work with our friends at California Waterfowl Association um, to check to see if ducks have started nesting in our cover crops before we prep the fields for rice planting. And if so, we tread carefully into the fields and rescue mm-hmm. the eggs and transfer them to a local hatchery to be incubated, hatched, raised, and released back into the wild. And this is something that we've been doing since the early 90s. And over the years, we've rescued more than 30,000 ducklings wow. from our fields. And it all goes back to that practice of growing cover crops during the winter. Awesome. And so this whole notion of regenerative, your family was very early pioneers in this. How is it? I have a two-sided question for you. First of all, from the perspective of consumers, and then from the perspective of the industry, how are consumers receiving and interacting with you about this regenerative organic practices that you're doing? And what kind of response have you gotten from your customers? Sure. So on the consumer side, I think there's a lot of confusion out there about what regenerative means. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of brands making regenerative claims without really talking about what it means to them. And sometimes it doesn't mean a whole lot. But for us, when we talk about regenerative, we're talking about regenerative organic. And it means a lot to us. We, we've talked through what it looks like as a year-round commitment for us, 365 days out of the year, um, to care for not just our land, but also the creatures that live on it. Mm-hmm. And so we actually launched a new campaign in April of 2023, just before Earth Day, called Ducking Good Rice. <laughs> Oh, nice. Um, and we launched it with a, a full page ad in the New York Times just ahead of Earth Day about how not all rice saves baby ducks, but our ducking does. And for us, every ducking day is Earth Day. And it's a campaign that's a little, a little edgy, a little fun. It leads with humor, but really it's about the heart that we have for our land and, and the creatures who call it home, like I said. And we're hoping that it'll be a way to start a conversation with consumers about what regenerative organic means to us. Because to put it simply, it means a duck ton, right? And and it it might ruffle a few feathers, but... but Oh, bad. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I can't resist. But what it's really all about is if we care this much about a few ducks on our property, imagine how much we care about our rice. Yeah. And so, and so that's one way that we've been talking with consumers about what regenerative organic means to us. And how have the consumers been receiving that? What has there been something that's happened with with somebody that like indicated to you, oh yes, this is the reason I'm doing this? 
Yeah, so it, we've been really excited to see consumers really embrace this campaign. And some of them embrace it just on the level of, you save baby ducks, that's awesome, I'm in. And others dig a little deeper and really see this as, as just one piece of our regenerative organic approach um, mm-hmm. to, to everything we do here at Lundberg. I would say overall, the reaction has been positive. And I, I think that we're just really starting down this path of having this conversation with consumers. So it's going to be something that evolves and a conversation that evolves as, as we really educate consumers, not just on what regenerative organic means, but what it means in practice here at Lundberg and how rice grows. A lot of consumers don't realize that rice is a plant and it grows in the ground and the way that you grow it matters, not just for people, but also for the planet. We have a lot of consumers who are just very knowledgeable, just like the people that listen to Urban Farm, right? They, yep. They're educated, they're knowledgeable, they know what good farming practices are. But I think part of our goal in with our customers is that they will join us and say regenerative should always be regenerative organic. And that as the United States, USDA, and and our different departments of agriculture work with this term, that the term is defined as regenerative organic. And that regenerative isn't just allowed to be a, a term that means anything to anybody that I used to use five herbicides and now I only use four and that's regenerative. No, regenerative is taking care of the soil, working with wildlife and the animals in your system and being always fair to the people who are working with you and and the teams that participate in farming. We think there should always be regenerative organic and that it should be defined and it should be certified. And so we we hope to join with consumers, customers who say, yeah, that's what regenerative is. Yeah. It's not greenwashed. Yeah. It's not any, whatever anybody says it is. And so as this term is used more and more in, in agriculture and you see it in, in your, where, you, where consumers purchase their food, we hope they join with us and say, yeah, we agree. And we'll push for that. Nice. And how has the industry responded to your this push? I think that it's started a lot of conversations with our customers on the retail side as well. Mm-hmm. Um, retailers have been really excited about this campaign and about our commitment to regenerative organic farming practices. We launched our first regenerative organic certified product, a regenerative organic certified white basmati rice in April of 2023. Um, but really, this is the first of many more to come. We've set a goal to, to certify all of the organic rice that Lumberg grows as regenerative organic certified by 2027. And I think um, our customers, our retailers are, are really excited about that. And there's been interest in um, not only learning more about what that means on the ground, um, but also coming to see how we grow our rice here in California and what what those practices look like on the ground. Regenerative organic means different things to different people, I think, as Brita would, would say, but we have joined the Regenerative Organic Alliance that has this ROC certification, and they've been very responsive to us. What I think we've realized is that regenerative organic farming is can be context-specific, that rice grown, say, in upland systems is going to look different and the farming system is going to be different than rice and 
in a patty system. Mm -hmm. Rice grown in Asia is going to be grown a little differently or regeneratively than it is in California. And the Regenerative Organic Alliance has been very, I would say, very responsive uh, to us in that. Although we've got, I would say, Greg, and I don't know if you know this, but about half the rice that Lundberg Family Farms grows and sells is grown by our own family and about half by about 25 to 30 farms that farm with us and, and have farmed with us for generations. Wow. Because when you're a farmer, an organic rice farmer, you have to have a relationship with a place that will store it after harvest, mm-hmm. that will mill it, and then that will package it and, and bring it to the market. And so we've had some of the farmers that farm with us say, that regenerative organic, I've got to have cows or sheep or goats on my farm. And I think you could interpret these standards to say that, but we've started the regenerative organic certification on our home farms, and then it'll be all the family's land, and then we'll bring it to the farmers who grow with us. And I would say their farming practices align, but getting them all through the certification process will take a few years, as Brita had had suggested that our goal is that all the organic land will be in this ROC certification by and through it by 27. I remember a time maybe five or six years ago where you were doing, it wasn't certified organic yet, but you were using those practices and then you transitioned. So this has been a transition period for you, has it not? It has. And we continue to transition ground uh, to, to certified organic. If we buy ground, and it takes three years to certify it, mm-hmm. we will continue to certify more land. And as organic grows, and we see regenerative organic certification as a uh, a point of differentiation that's going to grow and, and, and grow. In a, and we have a lot of, I would say, the question about consumers, there's a lot of consumer excitement about this. Oh, yeah. We were at the Natural Products Expo show where we introduced the the first ROC or regenerative organic certified products. And there's a lot of excitement about it. Yeah, And we think it will be an opportunity to continue to grow in the amount of regenerative organic farming we do and and then the products that we sell to, to our consumers. Nice. Nice. Thank you for that. Thank you for all that you do around this. This is such an important piece of information and education that you're bringing. And it's just ducking perfect. Cherokee Ranch, do you open it up for tours? Do you open it up to the public? And what does it look like? It's one of the farms that that our family has, and it's the one I take care of. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and so every morning and every evening, I am, I would call irrigating, but I'm walking the fields. Yeah. Walking the fields. I'm evaluating, proofing, scouting the rice and the weeds and, and making sure the water depths are where I want them. But it's a beautiful piece of property. It's about 800 acres. Wow. Um, it's on and the valley that we grow in is, has the, the Cascades and Sierra on the east. It has the coastal range on the west. And Cherokee Ranch is tucked in on the east side of the valley, close to where the foothills of the Sierra are. And because it's up on the, tucked on the edge, it has a little more elevation change. So we have contours where you think about the, a lot of 
farms or, or rice fields are squared up, 90 degree type of, of uh, angles and long straight lines. But Cherokee Ranch has meandering checks that, that just curve according to the lay of the land. And it's not quite as efficient, but I just think it's just a beautiful way that the paddies interact with the, the land. From a natural perspective, though, it's much more efficient. It's certainly as you've prepared the fields, it, it just, the water flows, the land flows mm-hmm. yep. uh, with the, uh, the contour and much more efficient from a permaculture standpoint, right? It's the, uh, the working with the land and understanding how the land lays and flows. Yeah. Um, of course, the water flows from high spots to low spots, and we put the water in at the top. It comes out at the bottom, but the way Cherokee Ranch lays, it's a long, narrow piece of property, and so water comes out of one field, goes back into where we gather water into ponds, and then it goes again out as irrigation to the next fields. And nice. All the water is used and reused in this organic regenerative organic system supporting ponds that have fish and frogs and snakes and turtles in them and those come out into the fields when the water flows into the fields so we have this abundant life that's growing in with the rice which then attracts all sorts of birds egrets and herons and bitterns and when the water is shallow at the beginning there's avocets and stilts and little sandpipers as the water gets a little deeper, those birds move to other parts of the farm. But Cherokee Ranch is where I spend the beginning and end of, of my workday. And Brita and I will see each other at the office and I'll ask Brita, hey, Brita, what do you do? And you want to go, go check out Cherokee Ranch. And those are some good parts of the day, aren't they, Brita? The best. Mm-hmm. Nice. Now, I'm on my four acres here, I'm I've got about 180 fruit trees that I've either already planted or I'm going to plant here in the next month or so. And it's my afternoon walk. You go out and go out and see how things are growing. Interestingly, Mm -hmm. I used worm castings from my worm bin when I planted my elderberries. Wow. Wow. And the tomatoes that are popping up between the elderberries are doing better than the tomatoes that I have in my gardens. And uh, volunteering? They're just volunteering from- They just yeah. showed up. Yeah. Yeah. So they know where yeah, they want to grow. Yeah, but exactly. The worms are powerful, aren't they? You think, are there worms in rice soils when it's flooded? And there are. You pull up the soil and yep. uh, there, there, there are plenty of worms. The power of nature, the seen and unseen, especially the unseen, the interaction of the things that are, are, are smaller than our, than our eyes can, um, can perceive are working, uh, are working for us. And isn't that something how nature, I may go home at the end of the day when the sun goes down, but the plants and nature continue to work and, uh, yep. and grow. And uh, we're for, so fortunate for that. Nice. Nice. Hey, Brita, I hear there's a story about your first day back on the farm. That's pretty epic. First of all, how you got the job is hilarious. That was great. Yeah. You shared that earlier. Yeah. So my first day back, I was, I think we had a couple of days of orientation to sit through, but during my hold lunch on, hold break. On. 
Hold on. So they were giving you orientation about the farm? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> orientation about, yeah. <laughs> Safety procedures, all of those kinds of oh, things. Right. Um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Now I tell part of our story during orientation now, but, but we had a couple days to sit through. But on my first day during my lunch break, my dad said, you want to go out to Cherokee Ranch? And so we drove out there and I had just moved back home from New York and I, I felt I'd been away from the farm for about 10 years. So I was seeing everything through fresh eyes. And of course, mm. most of my experience for the past 10 years had been in, in really densely populated cities, New York and London and LA, not quite as much nature to see. And, and we get out to the fields and they were just filled with swans. Um, wow. Just filled with swans. And I was just, taken aback because of course I, I grew up in the fields and, and spending time out on the farm with my dad, but to, to come home after having been away and to have fresh eyes for, for the landscape and, and to be able to see it through that lens and be amazed by it all over again was pretty incredible. But then also to realize that like my dad alluded to, we're part of something bigger here. Yeah. We're not just farming and selling rice. We are providing habitat for birds as they travel the Pacific Flyway. We're returning water to rivers and streams where zooplankton from the fields support healthy salmon populations. Our farm is part of an elaborate ecosystem and we really see ourselves as stewards of that system. It felt like a really epic moment yeah. for me um, and one that I carried with me, but also replicated for people. Part of my job that I don't think any of us predicted, but part of my job has become giving farm tours to, to customers, oh, nice. um, to partners. And there's really no substitute for getting out there on the farm, getting into hip waders and out in the fields, or even in the winter when we're not growing rice, getting people out to see the birds. Um, there's a magic to it. And so it's really fun for me to be, to be able to share that magic that I felt that first day um, back on the farm with other people when they come to visit us. Wow. And your sense of stewardship and your handling of stewardship is, in my humble opinion, that's where we all need to go with all of our lives. But that's pretty deep in your roots, is it not? It is. I think it goes back to great grandpa Albert's advice to, to leave the land better than we found it. And of course, yeah. I don't think he was just talking about the land itself, but that broader system. Yeah. It is deep in our roots, Greg. It sure is. The stewardship yeah. of, of the land. Because that's all we are, are stewards. But we want to continue to be stewards through generations. And what good is it if He's done so many things for, for so many years, building the soil and, and growing the, the health in the soil to, to possibly lose that and, and turn it over to a conventional farmer to, to just change, yeah. right? We do want to be stewards for three generations, four generations, and beyond. Nice. And I loved how you said it, it's deep in our roots. The roots are so important. It's what we don't necessarily see. But as we're out monitoring the, the fields and, and pulling up plants, the the roots of the organic rice are uh, are so deep 
uh, because of that time when we dry the fields up for 30 days, the plants want to stay with the, with moisture, and the this the amount of roots are just much more extensive. And so when the water comes back on, those plants will rehydrate and and be that much stronger because the roots are so much deeper. Nice. So before we transition, tell me about your products and where we can find them. So we grow 17 different varieties of rice. So packaged rice is where we started. Short grain brown rice, sushi rice, red rice. Sushi rice. (laughs) Yeah. I actually, I actually, I have some of your sushi rice that I got from Azure Standard maybe three or four months ago, and I've started making vegetarian sushi rolls. Oh, yum. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and it's working yeah. really well. It's oh, sticky good. rice. Yeah. It is sticky, sticky rice. rice. It is calcari. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. It's a, a cross between koshikari from Japan uh-huh. and California short grain. And so we call it calcari. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. And sorry, Brita, uh, I interrupted you because I was so no, excited about my good. sushi rice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we've got all sorts of, of packaged rice, but then we also have all sorts of rice cakes. So those classic round rice cakes that are nice and thick and crunchy mm-hmm. um, in all sorts of different flavors. Um, lightly salted is our most popular, but we just um, added a salted caramel um, variety as well. And, and then we've got rice cake minis that are more munchable and crunchable nice. and thin stackers, which are thinner square cakes, chocolate covered thin stackers. I was going to say, where's the chocolate at? <laughs> we've got some chocolate. And then also we've got rice in a box, we call it. So we've got 20 minute risottos or rice and seasoning mixes. And we even have 90 second rice that you can pop in the microwave and, and have ready to go in, in just wow. a couple minutes. So, cool. And it's yeah. it's pretty much available wherever you shop for your organics. Yeah. We love to think that. Exactly. You could find <laughs> that at your natural food store or you mm-hmm. find it at your co-op store. Uh, of course, I think you could find it at Azure Standard that would come in and support a vine club. Uh, and we hope that you would be able to find it at some of your the grocery stores. We're in many grocery stores. We're a cornerstone brand at a natural food store. And, and of course, you can order straight from us at lumber.com. Oh. Yep. Oh, we very good. We launched our direct-to-consumer site. It's great for some of those harder-to-find products like our black pearl rice, which I love. Oh, nice. What were you going to say, Bryce? Exactly. During the, <laughs> I think it was during COVID, we launched mm-hmm. direct-to-consumers just so that anybody, anywhere could get any of our products. Yep. It's coming right from our farm. And I love it when Brita says, Dad, we're going to have a sale. Let's go out in the field and, <laughs> and film a, a little spot on, on the sale. It's, it's nice. really nice that Brita would, okay, I'm not an actor, but I play a rice farmer sometimes on our <laughs> Oh, there you we go. We have a lot of fun. That's one of the cornerstones of this conversation I'm really getting. You guys have a lot of fun with what you do. We We love what we do and we have a lot of fun with it. (laughs) There you go. Our number one rule on our team is have fun. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might've learned from it. Brita? Sure. So I think that when I first left New York and left book publishing behind, it really did feel like failure. I'd been working towards this career for a long time and 
um, had dreamed of becoming a book editor and had loved it for a long time. So I think shifting directions in a way felt like giving up on one of my dreams. But I think that I just had to really, I guess it sounds cheesy, but look within and think about the kind of life that I wanted and be okay with the, the fact that it might not look as successful to other people or might not look like the success that I had been working towards, but was truer to what I wanted and, and be willing to shift directions. Nice. Bryce? I was going to take you to a failure that I had on some of my early farming when I would, especially when I was weed, weed management or, or water grass, and I would hold the water too deep, too long, and the rice would get sick. And my dad would come out and look at the rice with me and he'd say, Bryce, you, you've had the water here on too long, too deep, and the rice has gotten sick and, and the crop's not going to be very good. And I'd say, okay, I'm going to learn from that. And I'm going to let the rice through earlier. And the next year, and, and the, the trouble is you only get one shot a year at this, growing right. a crop like rice. And then I'm going to learn from that and let the rice through quicker. And let dad come out and say, Bryce, you haven't held it long enough. And, and you've let these weeds come through. And, and you're going to have a very weedy field for the rest of the season. But, but I think it's through failure. And it's through those tough lessons that you hone in on, on really the sweet spot. And I think you also learn that you're not going to get perfect, right? And sometimes perfect is the, the enemy of good. Yeah. And that you're looking for a, a middle ground where it's going to work. But I've had a lot of failures. Brita, Brita can attest that not all my fields look great, Greg. And they're all going to produce rice, and, and there's good ones and bad ones. And, and that, I, I pray over all of them, because I do realize that, that really we can just work our, our best and yeah. work our hardest and, and try to put the rice in a good place. But eventually, it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow, and, and there's forces much greater than I am that are, that are going to determine if it's good or bad. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. And uh, your biggest success, Brita? Well, I guess it's related to my biggest failure. I think now I think of, of moving home and, and coming back to the farm as my biggest success and, and being able to, to help carry our story forward that is really rewarding on a personal level, but also a, a professional one to start to see our story resonate with people because for a long time, we just weren't telling it. And so to be able to tell it now and share it with people, but also see people respond to me, that that feels like success. Wow. Bryce? I'm a third generation farmer, Greg, and, and the biggest success and one I'm just very thankful and, and I would say, dare say proud is that I have three children, Anders, Lars, and Brita, and two of them have joined the farm and, uh, and embraced the farm and won a farm. And I think of Brita and Anders and, and our middle boy is Lars, really could there be any better success than to have kids carrying on or children carrying on the family business? Especially with this is your fourth generation. Hopefully there's a fifth and a sixth. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But a success of one generation, I think, is, is based on whether the next generation will carry on. Yeah. And I'm sure thankful that they are. Excellent. And what drives you both? What's your big why, Brita? I think stories have always 
driven me, right? And and nothing drives me more than our family's story, I think. Yeah, just making sure that we're staying true to it and, and carrying it forward for the next generation. I think stories connect people. I think they they connect our family because with each generation, our family naturally gets a little more removed. That just happens with each generation of a family. But I think our stories and our relationships really connect us and, and bring us closer and then also help connect us with our customers and our consumers. So yeah. I think um, that connection from stories is, is what really drives me. Your story is an epic one as a family, and it's one I've known for a while, and it propels me to, to consume your products. So yay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Thank you. you bet. Bryce? I really think it is family and farm, Greg. Um, Sometimes people ask, what comes first, farming or family? And, and I say, um, farming yes. is life and, and life is farming. Farming is family and, and family is farming. And those things drive me. I want to carry on the family's history, the family's vision, the family's mission. And, and it starts every day by saying, yeah, I'm ready to, get, to, to go out and, and tend to the crops. And, and so I think it is. What drives me is the farming and the family. And, and people would ask, is, and I would say far, farming is life and life is farming. And, and it's both. Is farming life? There is life farming and it's both. When you're a farmer, they intertwine in, in ways that you can't separate. Yeah. Beautiful. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Miss Book Publisher? I read a lot of novels. Um, but, well, that, but that works think, too. So do I. Yeah. <laughs> But I think if I were to recommend one one book to people, it would be um, a book of Mary Oliver's poems. I love her poetry. And, and of course, they often come to mind wild geese, of course, when I'm out in the fields. I think about that one a lot when, when yep. the birds are out there. But then just her advice to, to pay attention, be astonished, and, and tell about it. So I would recommend any of her books of poetry. Nice. Bryce? I'm reading a book right now that I'm really enjoying. It's called Because Our Fathers Lied from Craig McNamara. Craig McNamara, he's a friend of mine, an organic walnut farmer, also uh -huh. ROC certified. And his father was Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense for President Kennedy and President Johnson. And I've known Craig for a long time. And, and he wrote a book about his struggles. And, and challenges in a relationship with his father. And for me, the book, it, it reminds me about we all have relationships, those relationships we have, with, especially with our parents and, and then our, and our children are such important ones. And in many ways, this book makes me so thankful that my relationship with my father is different than the relationship that Craig has had or had with his father. But I think sometimes you don't realize how fortunate you are, how lucky you are uh, until you read the kind of or understand through other people's relationships and yeah. uh, I'm really enjoying that. And, and I think it'll change my relationship with Craig McNamara uh, as I know more about really how the deep feelings of and challenges uh, that he had in his relationship yeah. with his dad. Thank you for that. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I guess top of mind for me is great grandpa Albert's advice to, to leave the land better mm -hmm. than you found it. And I think you can um, 
think about that in a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to be a farm. It can be the land can be a garden or the world more broadly, the relationships that you have, the work that you do, try to leave everything a little better than you found it. Nice. Bryce? Working with teams and, and working with the, uh, the the team here at Lundberg Family Farms, I'm often reminded that, I, and I would say to people, hope is not a strategy. And that's an unusual uh, statement, isn't it? Hope is not a strategy because we all need to, to have a, a plan and put actions uh in, in place. But I do believe hope is so important. So hope is not a strategy, but without hope, I don't think our strategies ever come to fruition. That hope comes first, and then we put them into action. So hope may not be a strategy, but it is so important to everything we do in life. I think it's, uh, I think hope is a, a thing, a desire, that has us create. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's a driver. Hope is a driver, maybe. It is a driver. And, and some people say, I hope that piece of equipment isn't going to break down. And I would say, yeah, okay, so what are we going to do to help that piece <laughs> of equipment stay stay running? And so you want to have hope, but you also want to, to say, but I know that there's a plan I need to put in place to make what I'm hoping for come to fruition. Yeah. And, and I agree, hope is a driver, and I never want to underestimate or undervalue the role that hope has in our lives yeah. and in our and what we're doing. But in and of itself, it's not a strategy. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you both for joining us on the show today. I have been just, and I love your products. I've known of you for many years, and this was a very exciting thing for me to have you here and be able to spend an hour with you chatting about your history. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg. It was an honor really to talk with you. We really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, what a privilege. And thank you for the relationship you've had with our mm-hmm. farm, with our products for so many years. Without you, without customers who care, we don't farm. Yeah. Our products need to find your home, mm. need to find your home, need to find your kitchen, need to find where you want to um, consume products. So thank you so much. Oh, you bet. And so how can our listeners get a hold of you? Sure. So you can find us at Lundberg.com or on social media. We're on Instagram at Lundberg Farms, Lundberg Family Farms on Facebook. And then you can also give us a call, 530-538. 3500 is our farm's phone number, and you'll hear my voice <laughs> when you do that. So we would love to hear from you. Nice. Once again, thank you both very much. And you can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Lundberg Rice. So it's not just the two of you that are running the Lundberg Farms. There's a whole bunch of you, isn't there? There sure are, Greg. Breach and I are fortunate to be part of a a third and fourth generation of a larger family. There are about 40 family members that own Lundberg Family Farms. Wow. Um, You talk about a complex, sometimes complex family business, 40 family members working together to to run and support a, a family farm is a complex. I'm not sure it's the best way to go. The good thing is, Everyone wants to pull together and and are proud of what the work of our grandparents and our parents. And so we continue to work together. A lot of times families separate 
And, wow. and this generation, they'll say, it's been nice, but we're going to go this way or go that way. And we are 40 families, 40 people that own the Lundberg family farms together. Wow. And now are all 40 people working on the farm? There are four of us who, who work at the farm day in and day out at the company. But then several family members also farm for Lundberg family farms. For instance, my dad and uncle farm together and, and sell their rice to Lumberg Family Farms. My my brother and I farm together, our cousins, my dad's cousins and their kids. Um, and then, of course, we also have a family council that kind of bridges the relationship from the family to the company. And then, of course, a few family members on our board of directors as well. So there are lots of different ways to be involved with Lumberg Family Farms as a family member and I would say just about everyone is involved in, in some way or another. Now, this makes a lot more sense how you applied to go to work there. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> right. How cool is that? If it was up to the Lundbergs alone, we wouldn't, we'd be sacking off a little bit of rice here. We have a team of about 400 that come to work for Lundberg Family Farms every wow. day. And it's really through the dedication of an amazing team that, come to work, to share a vision, to share a mission, to, to leave the land better than we found it, and to, to really try to improve the, the world through regenerative organic farming. Mm -hmm. We sometimes, Brita, what do we say? We got to farm regenerative organic because the world does depend on it. Our yeah, bodies, we... the health of our bodies do depend on it. And yes. we're fortunate right. to have so many people that will share that vision with us. Yep. We believe the health of our bodies and our planet depend on it. And we'll end with that. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.